So this morning, uh, we are continuing on with our series, with our studies through the book of Luke. And um, I've been thinking some about it as I was reading scripture this last week, reading Luke chapter 5, um, thinking some about what's the best way for us to help people grow as disciples, as followers of Jesus. You know, what is our main goal? Is our main goal to make sure people don't break a bunch of rules? Or is our main goal to help them love and follow Jesus? Those are two different things. I think about how does Jesus teach? This is a great question for us. For those of us who have been disciples for a while, and for those who are new to faith, what's the best way? How does Jesus teach? How should we approach disciple-making as a church? It's been a couple weeks now. Uh, I was on holidays for a couple weeks. But John preached a few weeks ago on uh, Luke chapter 5. And if you remember that story... Uh, which would be pretty great if he did. But uh, he was talking about Levi and how Jesus was walking one day by a tax collector named Levi. He called him to follow him, and he dropped everything, left everything, the text says, and began following Jesus. And then Levi invited Jesus to his house. And now, Jesus had a knack for mixing with the wrong sort of person. And, and so the Pharisees are asking him, you're saying, you know, Jesus, why are you spending time with these sinners? And Jesus replied to them, he said, because the sick need the doctor, not the healthy. He'd come to call sinners to repentance, not the righteous. And if you read that story carefully, you realize that even the Pharisees who thought they were righteous were actually um, falling to the sin of pride and an arrogance. That really, um, righteousness has a lot more to do with not just keeping all the rules, but also your heart as well. Well, this week we pick that story back up. Jesus is still at that dinner. And I was thinking about it today, like, what would be like a comparable? Because we don't really have tax collectors, people who actually walk around or you have to pay them money. I think it may be something like, like Jesus is at a defense attorney's house. Now, a defense attorney, a defense attorney is the, the attorney whose job it is to defend the criminal. And sometimes the criminal is a pretty bad person. And the defense attorneys to do their best to get them off. Um, and so imagine Jesus is at a defense attorney's house or maybe even a criminal's house. And it's crowded, you can imagine, with the wrong sort of people. The sort of people that everybody else, especially the religious, looked at down their nose. And so the Pharisees, they come at Jesus again. And they said to him, John's disciples, this is the John the Baptist, John's disciples often fast and pray. So do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Can you almost hear the sanctimony in their voice? That self-righteous indignation, thinking that they were the ones who set the bar as what's right and wrong. The Pharisees, you see, they had built this elaborate maze of traditions to make sure they keep the wrong people out. To keep the riffraff from getting close to God. And not only that, um, it was a way to allow only the people who would play the game with them in. So it was not about holiness uh, to God, but rather compliance with their elaborate traditions. Traditions that kept them calling the shots about who was in and who was out. And so Jesus answered, he said, can you make the guest of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. Now, this is a rhetorical question. 
In Jesus' day, the obvious answer to this question is, of course not. Of course you wouldn't have the guests fast while they were with the bridegroom. You see, in an ancient Near Eastern wedding, it was a big deal. A wedding oftentimes went for a week or more. And it was filled with feasting and celebration, all sorts of customs. Fasting at a wedding would be at the height of insult to the host, to the family that was hosting the wedding. It was unthinkable to be fasting at a wedding. And then Jesus says this, but he says, but a time will come. And Jesus, interesting, refers to himself here as the bridegroom. He's making an important statement, calling himself the bridegroom here. Now, in Israel's tradition, Yahweh, the Lord God, was the bridegroom of his people. If you look at Isaiah 54, verse 5, it says, Your maker is your husband, and the Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. So you can see here that Jesus is making not only a, a parable, not only helping them understand, making an analogy, but also making some important statements about who he is. He gives us, gives us a subtle clue here that he's more than just a great teacher. And Jesus says this. He says, it will be taken from them, and, then those, and they will fast in those days. The days are coming when the Messiah would be gone. And in those days, they'll fast. In those days when the church waits between his first coming and his second coming, there will be times for us, the church, to fast. Now see, fasting was used as an intense sort of prayer. It was an urgent petition to God, used in times of desolation. This is not, fasting isn't typically something you do to celebrate, but rather when your heart is broken, when you're crying out to God. So, when they don't have Jesus with them, then they'll fast. To make his point, Jesus tells them a parable. <clears throat> he says, no one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he'll have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. Now, what does this parable mean? This is the thing about parables. is that they kind of do some work. That's what they're meant to do. They're meant to get us thinking <clears throat> about what is Jesus talking about. So, it's imperative that we... Um, um, context is everything. Talking about the practices of the disciples here. That's the question that the Pharisees have. You know, why aren't your disciples fasting? Why aren't they doing what disciples are supposed to do? Now, the key thing here is that patching, as you read this, this uh, parable, as you listen to it, patching wrecks both garments. See, if you take a new garment and you cut a piece or tear a piece out of it, then you've wrecked the new garment. And then you try and patch it on an old, and it doesn't match. And in Matthew and Mark, when, they tell us, when Jesus tells the same parable in those Gospels, this is actually tears away because it, doesn't, it shrinks differently. So, um, now this could be Jesus talking about his whole movement. But I think it's actually about new disciples. See, Jesus is at this party here with Levi, the tax collector, remember, who had just begun following Jesus. Not only that, but Jesus has his disciples who are with him as well. Well, it's hard for us because it's been a few weeks that we've been studying Luke. But actually, in chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 5, just a few verses before this, was when Jesus called his disciples. So even his disciples are sort of new at this party. Not only that, but Levi has called his tax collector friends, many of them who aren't even Christians yet. So there's this whole mix of very new believers, Jesus, and a bunch of people who weren't believers at all. So, 
This house is filled with all these new believers. And the Pharisees are trying to press Jesus' disciples into their mold. The trouble is, their mold has holes in it, to use the parable of the garment. So don't ruin new disciples. Don't cut pieces out of them to try and fix the holes in their religiosity, into their legalism, to their pile of traditions that have really little to do with God. Don't crush new believers with heavy yoke of legalism and traditions and a long list of do's and don'ts that are made up for religious sake. In fact, Jesus seems to be saying, help new disciples learn their own way. Hence, the second part of this parable. It says, and no one pours new wine into old wine. So these parables work together. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says the old is better. So the thing is, since here, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. This is very similar to the patching parable. The point is, both will be ruined. If you put new wineskins in an old wineskin, it bursts. The new wine runs out on the ground. It's, it's wrecked now. It's, you can't drink it. And the old wineskin is ruined at the same time. They will both be ruined. And it's not here at verse 38 that Jesus says, No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. Now, new wineskins were made out of actual animals. Oftentimes they would use the neck and the shoulders because it kind of, came, you know, it kind of tapers down at the neck. It's easier to tie it off to seal it. And a new wineskin, um, we don't really deal with skins anymore. Um, those of you who hunt or maybe who are farmers, you might know that a new skin is actually pretty stretchy. Um, it's, it's supple, it's flexible, it's pliable, which was great because new wine, when you put it in there, as it fermented, it would grow and it would expand the gases and stuff. And so it would stretch the skin. So you can imagine if you tried to reuse a stretched skin, one that was already stretched to its max because it already held wine. So if you put new wine in it, it stretches till the skin won't stretch anymore. And then finally it bursts because it can't stretch anymore. It's already stretched as much as it can. So the new wine must be poured into new wineskins. So, just making sure I'm on the right part. My notes are all backwards. <laughs> um, so both can expand together. Now, if the parable ended there, we might think that Jesus is saying, new is better than old. His new way, his new religion is going to replace the old religion. But that's not what he's saying here, and here's why. Now, in verse 39, it says, And no one after drinking old wine wants new wine, for he says the old is better. Now, I've never had new wine. Maybe some of you have. I've heard that it tastes sharp, unbalanced, kind of acidic. People love aged wine because the flavors, they mix more. The wine, I hear it mellows. It mingles. The acidity goes down. It just tastes better. So it could be that Jesus is criticizing the Pharisees because they're stuck in their traditions. And as reading different commentaries, some are reading it that way. That Jesus is essentially saying, you guys think that your old way is better and you're not even interested in hearing the new. But while Jesus is doing a new thing, I also think, I also realize and, and believe that he's actually trying to get back to the old way of understanding a relationship with God. 
You see, the Pharisees had introduced all sorts of traditions and things and rules you had to follow, how many steps you could take on a Sabbath day and how many were too many, that you could do this, but you can't do that. All these extra rules trying to make sure people didn't break Sabbath, for example. We'll be talking about this in the next few weeks. But Jesus is trying to get people back to faithfulness, back to God. So we want to be really careful saying that Jesus is starting something new here. I think actually what happened is, is the people had gotten off track and Jesus is trying to return them to the old way. To truly understanding who God is and how to relate to Him. Now I hear this parable, I hear something different. I hear Jesus talking about how people grow as disciples. Now it's true, like aged wine, a mature disciple is better. And I'm using mature here on purpose. Because there are plenty of old disciples who still aren't mature disciples, who aren't mature in their faith. The idea for us as disciples is to mature in our faith, so over the years, to become more and more like Jesus. Not to become more and more religious, but to become more and more like Jesus. So I hear Jesus speaking to us as a church this morning as well. The need to resist the temptation to force new disciples to look exactly like us. We want people to follow our good example. That's true. So it's imperative that we live good examples in front of them, that we follow Jesus faithfully. But we don't want to force believers to look and act exactly like us. We have to continually differentiate between Jesus' commands and our traditions. That our traditions don't become stumbling blocks for new believers. This is a picture of a tractor. You can see that it's a pretty modern tractor with pretty ancient wheels on it. Those are steel wheels on it. And I've heard people talk about there's certain different religious groups, sometimes Quakers, sometimes Mennonite, that they require tractors in their communities to have steel wheels. Now, I just did a real cursory uh, study in this, so I, there might be some errors in what I say. I just want to, be, I want to acknowledge that. But I read one guy who was saying that actually it was in the 1920s when tractors started coming out with rubber wheels that uh, Mennonite and Quaker groups actually insisted, mandated that their people have steel tires because they didn't want to um, lose their traditions. They didn't want to modernize too quickly. So they didn't allow their people to have cars. They said it was sinful to have a car to drive in a town. So you could drive by horse and buggy, but not by car. Well, the bishop saw one of these tractors run down the road with rubber tires, realizing that people might start driving their tractors to town. So they must have steel tires so they can't drive them to town. The thing is, whether our traditions are steel tires or the fact that you can't use playing cards, that's been one, or the type of clothes that you have to wear to church, if tradition helps you, great, but don't make it a stumbling block for others. It's like a wineskin. We need to give new believers skin so that they hold together. You want the skin that will hold them. You don't want to just say, do whatever, because that's not our faith. There are, there are actual commands that Jesus gives us, ways to live, so that's wineskin. But we need to give believers the skin that will hold them together, but not our own wineskin, because it's already been stretched out by us. We need to give believers their own wineskin. Help them find the spiritual practices that work best for them. Now, for us who've been following Jesus for a while, that takes humility and trust. 
Humility to know that our way is not the only way. That the practices we've used to help us follow Jesus are just that. Our practices. They are not the only way. So, if fasting helps us, great. Continue to do that. Encourage others to try it. Help them do it. Teach them about it. But fasting, as we learn in this story specifically, fasting is not the measure of a disciple. Now, if long hours of studying the Bible, for example, which is one of my favorites, uh, is our practice, great. If that helps us, wonderful. But that doesn't mean that how many hours you study the Bible is the measure of whether you're a disciple or not. I think it's important for us to read the Bible. I think it's vitally important for us. But if I said you must read the Bible 40 hours a week to be a faithful disciple, that would be wrong. Now, maybe that really helps me, but it may not help all of you. So, just as we've benefited from the skin that fits us, let's help new believers find the skin that fits them. So, first of all, it's humility. But not only that, but it also takes the Holy Spirit, trusting the Holy Spirit. It's not up to us to dictate to people. Thank God. Our role is to speak the truth, to talk about what is sinful and what is, what is not, but to help people know when they are sinning, yes, but to always speak the truth in love, never out of spice or out of anger. Like us, sometimes people need to learn for themselves. Our role as experienced disciples is to guide others, but not force them into our mold, not to put them into our wineskin, because the wineskin will burst and the wine will run out. And for those of you who feel new to faith, you need to grow in your own skin. A great way to do that is to model your life after mature disciples. Discern who are mature mature disciples and try the things that they do. But ultimately, you have to fit into your own skin. While there's spiritual practices help them, you may find other practices that help you. Embrace the wineskin you're in. Figure out how the Holy Spirit has wired you. And as Paul reminded Timothy, don't let others look down on you because you are young in faith. This is the sort of discipleship that Jesus taught. Not dogmatic, dictated traditions, but genuine with some flex to it. A guide like a wineskin. You're not just, we're not just free to do whatever we want. There are guides for us. There are things that are true that we need to, to live by. But there's also some flexibility in how we follow the practices especially that we take the following. So, as a church, we need to keep remind we need to be reminded about flexible wineskins. So our goal is to help disciples know and love and follow Jesus. Not to make people carbon copies of ourselves. And again, that takes humility to realize that our way might be good for us, but it is not the only way. And trust. To trust the Holy Spirit will be at work in people. And they might do things that we think like, oh, that's, that spiritual practice is the worst. It doesn't do anything for me. You shouldn't even try that. To not, to not fall prey to that. To trust the Holy Spirit will be at work in, in our brothers and sisters, especially those who are new in faith. And for those of you who are new in faith, to watch mature disciples. To see what they do. To try the practice they try but also be open that God might be doing something different in you. Maybe you find something else that is, that is especially helpful for you in growing your faith. This is our goal as a church. This is one of our main goals, is to help disciple each other. 
to help us grow and become more and more like Jesus. This is good news for what God is teaching us, that we each have a wineskin that we grow into. This is what I hear him saying to us this morning. Amen.